0: right hello and welcome everyone to another episode of waiting to be signed a very special interview episode we're joined today by peter bauman aka monk anthony as he's known online and if you have been around the fx hash world the right click save world the la random world you're very familiar with him probably Trinity, of course is with us as well how's it going everyone
1: good thank you yeah thanks for having me great to be on
2: It's so exciting to have you on. And, you know, we're on camera right now. You, the listeners, are not on camera with us, unfortunately. But I just wanted to call out, you have a very nice tender shirt on. Oh, yeah. Wear your art, man.
1: We all know him. He's another tender OG. But Dan, who's, you know, on Twitter, Flood with many Fs. Yeah, he was very kind to gift this to me. So, yeah, thank you very much, Dan.
0: Is that a hand-tie-dyed piece?
1: Yeah, I think it's like a... A one of one, from what I understand. Um, yeah, so it was a really nice gift from not only somebody like from Tinder, but we work with Dan very closely at Loranda because he's building our website. Uh, he also did like the right click, save, and club NFT site.
0: So definitely uh, appreciate that. It's cool to have another founding Tinder on the show. Though I think we, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit, but I think a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to be all over the space and just your story in general which I think would be a good place to start, which is an introduction from you, Monk. Who are you? What's your background in art, coding, collecting? You know, do you even code? How did you get into crypto and NFTs and generative art in general?
2: And how did you start writing about them also?
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks. I'll start with, uh,
1: I guess, my background in art or I guess like my, my love of art. It's something I've always been interested in, like in terms of visual art. Always went to museums growing up as a kid, and we had a museum membership to this modern art museum near us, and and my sister worked there, and and so we would we'd go there quite a bit. And uh, I don't know if I got it as a kid, you know, but something definitely seeped in some interest and and uh, an appreciation for it. And then I also think of film and, and music as as art. Obviously, I mean, so like I, I'm really into movies, like. Tarkovsky and, you know, Claire Denis and Kurosawa. Like, so I, I really like that history of film as well. And, and then music, you know, Brian Wilson is like one of my favorite artists ever. And, and David Byrne and Brian Eno and even today, like Beach House and Fiery Furnaces, like Panda Bear. Like, so, yeah, I don't think of art only visually and, and I have this kind of long love of it. And then, but another love of mine is like history. So I always, I've always loved history. I've always just loved contextualizing like kind of where we are and how we got here. So like it was kind of natural at some point, maybe to pair this uh, love of history and this love of art. And then I've always written to like professionally I've writing has been a big part of my career. So I lived in Hong Kong for 12 years and I started out there teaching and then I got two masters while I was living out there. They were in international relations, which is, I like to think of international relations it's like the history of like the news it's like how we got to you know current events and after that I did an MBA and I was going to go into something related to maybe diplomacy after that but I was in Hong Kong so I got like a natural for me to go into finance there and so I did that for a bit but I really really disliked that job but that is kind of how I got more interested in like tech and investing. I was actually covering Chinese tech for this equity research firm, which is a finance job, but actually what it is, is like research and writing. You research companies and you write about them. And it was tech related. So we were covering Chinese companies like Alibaba and Tencent. But I despised that job and that life. So I ended up moving to Bangkok and working at the UN there. And there's a place called the economic and social commission for Asia and the Pacific. It's kind of like the headquarters for the UN in Asia. And I was also doing writing and research there. And it was also tech related. It was about like tech for development and how countries can like most cost efficiently deploy like fiber optic cable, things like that. That's sort of how I got interested in like blockchain and that kind of side of it. And then through getting into like blockchain and crypto, which I got into investing in tech, I learned about NFTs and started learning about the art side. You know, I started collecting on ETH first and then moved to Tezos and, you know, Hikiknunk is where I started at Tezos. Through that is is where I heard about FX Hash. I wasn't there like day one in FXHash, but, you know, maybe a couple of weeks after it launched and it was, uh, it was like love at first sight. And it was also like the, you kind of hear a lot in the crypto space about community and like how important it is. But I I think a a lot of what I experienced in in that space with community was not actually, it didn't feel very authentic, (laughs) but once I got, uh, or I found FXHash, I did feel that and a few weeks or about a month or so after being a pretty regular character in like the FXash Discord, Kazi from uh, Tender and from FXash reached out to ask if I wanted to do something, do some writing for Tinder. That was the first writing I had done in this space. And that was back in like those early Tinder days. So that was like December 2021. When we first started there,
2: and that was back when editorials were huge. Like that was a main value driver.
1: That was kind of like your ticket into the into the club. Was like you sort of wrote an editorial. I'd never written anything about that space before, so I was asked to write an editorial. I had this kind of background in writing, but that was my first time that I had written about
0: the space. So that that was cool. Like Tinder really was my start with writing about art. And that was your Farb Tealer editorial, right? Which I feel like when that came out, the amount of references that you packed into that piece, like explaining some of the historical connections to art, like now seeing where you are now, like it makes so much sense, right? Like, because I think that was a pretty groundbreaking editorial compared to what others have written, like myself included, where it's more just kind of about like, what I like about this piece, you know, the end, like that's it. And yours was like, whoa, there's like a lot of research put into this and it felt really... On a different level.
1: That was what was so cool about Tinder and those like editorials is you know Adam was very open and and like you can do what you want and in a way you know I don't really know where that like came from like I didn't spend like a huge amount of time doing that especially relative to maybe other things that I've done since I was so interested in Farb Tyler and in the artist description about Farb Tyler. Eric Swan didn't really write that much about it like he put a little bit but you know it wasn't like super detailed so it's kind of open-ended where I could kind of just go where I wanted to take it and that was cool because I was talking to like Zach Lieberman recently and like he was talking about artists where like he like really wanted to like get inside their head and like just see where they came from and and the artist that he mentioned was like was Eric Swan and yeah I kind of felt that same thing just uh, this kind of inexplicable connection and I think part of that is his use of Color and something that he clearly places a lot of importance on, and he took that back to Johannes like Itten and and uh, Bauhaus, who was like one of the original like Bauhaus uh, instructors. So yeah, I think that piece or that collection and and that editorial and, and kind of getting invited by Tinder to write it was all kind of uh, serendipitous in a way.
2: And around the same time, that was when you started tweeting every single day. I went back and looked at your early tweets and it was, for at least 200 days, I will try to write about a piece of generative art. And I think it ended up being a whole year, right?
1: It was just 200 days because I was exhausted after those 200 days. I mean, I do still tweet maybe more ad hoc about it, but that like that 200 day mega thread because that was back in maybe February or, or January back last Still year. Still
2: early days, yeah.
1: Yeah, so like the collections had started to like pile up, but nothing like how they've piled up now. Just trying to like wrap my head around everything that was coming out and try to just get an idea of like what I like. So that's kind of where that started, and it wasn't pieces that even I necessarily owned. It was just work that I liked, and and some of it was before the 1.0 release. So some of it was during that time when there was going to be like the greats burning. That was also kind of part of it was I wanted to kind of uh, highlight some collections that were that I liked a lot that the supply was about to get burned. So that was also kind of one of the reasons I started doing that.
0: It was such a fun exercise and fun to follow and, and see like What's the next piece Monk's going to write about? And I'm sure you inspired quite a few people to mint or collect on the secondary at the time, too, which must have felt pretty good.
1: What I really got out of it was I do think it was like a good exercise in writing because you have to be so concise on, you know, with one tweet on Twitter. And then I was already using a bunch of characters for, you know, the title and the artist. And if the title had a really long, you know, name, I was like, oh no, this one's going to be really tough. But It was an exercise in in kind of using some of that vocabulary to write about art and just think about, you know, an exercise in sort of what resonated with me and certainly an exercise in concision and just like trying to say something that was even like half interesting, In you know, 80 characters because I I kind of already used a bunch for some other stuff. So I think that was also like another fun part about sort of developing as a as a
0: writer in this space. I think this could be a good segue also to talk a little bit about your collecting. You know, we browsed your wallets, of course, and you have a really eclectic collection. And also, you're still very active. You know, there's a lot of people who collected in the beginning and then kind of stopped collecting for a while. And you can see that gap in their minting history in their wallets. And like, they just went away for six months. But it kind of felt like you never took that break. You've always been engaged. So what do you look for in projects that you're minting? What qualifies a project to make its way into the vault? And- as you've kind of delved into this more like research, like education, like self-education on the history of generative art, like how has that learning influenced the way that you collect now?
1: Yeah, you're definitely right about the eclectic nature of my collecting. Like I was looking at it the other day and yeah, I think between Monk Antony and and Monc Antony Burner, I've got like a hundred pages on on objects, which I, I had no idea it was that much to be honest. In terms of like what I look for, I'm pretty agnostic about how famous an artist is or like what chain it is. Although obviously everything on object would be Tezos. But, uh, you know, if I like something and if it's one Tez, I have no problem getting it or minting several. And and if it's, uh, you know, a little more expensive, then, you know, I'll try to maybe move something around to get it too. But uh, that kind of taste is, is similar to my music taste, which is also quite eclectic. You know, I listen to a lot of different a lot of different genres and and i really like work that's experimental that makes me feel something and uh it's cool to talk about artists like i was i was very fortunate to like meet ken Asendorf in tokyo the other week when we were there for bright moments and he's also really into music and we were talking about how just like different music makes us feel different things and like how art can cause those same feelings. And I felt that way. Like some of my favorite music is like dream pop and like shoegaze. And I've talked to Zach Lieberman about the same, like literally those exact same genres, like cocktail twins and beach house and how like that music just makes you feel a certain way. And, and certain art makes you feel that way. Visual art makes you feel that way too. Like Iskra, her work is always her that kind of really delicate kind of fuzzy work. It sounds like beach house To me, it sounds like dream pop to me when, when I hear it, if I kind of see something that resonates, I'll go for it. And I also just love going through like a artist or collector that I respect and going through their wallet and picking through it and copying them. That's like one of the best things. And then in terms of the difference between Monk Antony Burner and Monk Antony Vault, there used to be a difference, but essentially there's no difference anymore. Like vault now just means like my earlier collection. That has a lot of like early pieces that I collected there. But at this point, I pretty much only use the burner to mint new things. So like the vault is like offline. Sometimes I'll send stuff to the vault, but I've even kind of gotten less inclined to do that. So vault definitely doesn't mean like I consider it special really in any ways. It's it's more just like my uh, hardware offline wallet.
2: So another question for you, also in line of what you collect. Would you say that you are a generative art maxi? Is I think something that a lot of people in the overall Hash community might say just in terms of that's what we're primarily exposed to day to day. Has that been really your primary point of contact within the blockchain art space?
1: I'm definitely not a generative art maxi in that I only collect pieces where the artist has, you know, ceded control to this autonomous system. A lot of the artists I love aren't necessarily generative, but I think the vast majority of what I've collected has been from FX hash. So in that sense, it's been generative. And Will, you you also asked about my research as how that's affected my collecting habits. And I do think that researching about the history or like knowing about the history, I, I do think that that does inform my collecting It helps you distinguish or it helps me distinguish between kind of what is actually new and like what's an imitation. And it also helps you dig deeper into uh, different artists that are out there. A lot of digital artists or generative artists are kind of only starting to get into NFTs. And so maybe they have a a longer practice that isn't NFT related. But uh, that's been cool as to like through like talking to people or just through research noticing that oh like this really influential artist has just started making nfts and and nobody's really talking about it yet because they're not big in like the nft generative art space but you know they're big you know they were at the whitney in in 2001 and and they're in you know the moma permanent collection but because they've only just started getting into nfts maybe they're only just starting to get noticed or they haven't been noticed by like this community yet so like One example of that is, like, Jason Salavon, who's, uh, yeah, he's in the permanent collection of LACMA and and MoMA and and the Met. And he was at Bitstreams at the Whitney in 2001. And artists from that generation, like Casey Rees and Ben Fry and Zach, that was, like, a really big exhibition for them around their formative years. And I know that artists like Salavon, like, directly inspired some of those, like, you know, huge names in the space. So uh, that's something that has... A way that kind of research and, and learning more and digging deep has informed my collecting. Salivan his new project is pretty cool. And it just came out like a week ago. Is this Totem? Yeah. It's got a cool conceptual element. He comes from that more mainstream art world. So, of course, you know, typically there's they're a bit stronger on the conceptual side. And, you know, obviously that's not always the case. He was doing AI art. Since like early days, he's been an OG in in AI art as well. So he has a lot of like pop culture references in his work and kind of always has. And and this piece uh, definitely demonstrates that. And it's making a comment about like kind of wealth disparity and income disparity. And what's cool about the collection is that there are some pieces that are, are I think, like 60 ETH or something, which, (laughs) you know, realistically will probably literally never be sold or at least Not likely in the near term, but then there are pieces that are like five US dollars. So it's quite an interesting collection in in that respect and definitely, I think, a very interesting project.
0: It was interesting to hear you say that the community has a hard time discovering like these legacy world, like trad world artists that cross over. It's something that I feel like we all collectively want, but then you're right. It's like when it happens, it feels like often those artists aren't rewarded. Collectors here don't know about them or aren't conditioned to collect them or are skeptical of the price points maybe. And their collectors from the traditional world are skeptical of the medium that they're now releasing the work on. It does kind of feel like a lose-lose proposition for them often. Like, is that something, have you ever talked to any of these people now? Like, I imagine you've probably gotten into more collecting those artists as well, right? Like, have you had any conversations like that? A lot of them from the mainstream art world do have a
1: skepticism of NFTs, especially from the more pioneering generation. When we talk later about the random, I can kind of get into generations more. But uh, another example would be two artists who are huge pioneers that I love and that I've been fortunate to like speak to. One is A. Michael Knoll, and I'm sure you guys have heard of him. You know, he was in that very first, like, Howard Wise gallery show in 1965, and that was, like, the first non-university, like, the first, like, public gallery computer art exhibition. And, he made the Mondrian
0: thing, right?
1: Right, yeah, that experiment with, yeah, computer composition with line, And and, and so, like, Knoll, I, I've had a long conversation with him, and, like, he's very skeptical of, of NFTs and releasing his work as NFTs. And, and I guess he feels uh, it can be hard to wrap your head around it. And especially, I, I think he's got quite a negative view of them. He has that in common with quite a few people, I guess, and like that aren't in the space who do associate NFTs with you know monkey JPEGs and scams and rugs or snake oil is I think literally what he called them. So with somebody like him, it can be quite Tricky. It's just a slow process. Like, you're not going to change their mind over one email or one phone conversation. But, you know, maybe over time, if you kind of share different things, like I've shared. I've even shared like tender with him and because he also has disparaged like the kind of quality of the work being produced as NFTs, which is kind of ridiculous as we all.
2: When you have enough volume, of course, there'll be areas that where quality might be lesser than. And, but, you know, we are seeing so much volume and, but the the stuff that's great is like, it's truly art. And I don't think that anybody can say that it's not. And that goes for everything that's released, not just the, uh, the things that have a very high floor.
1: No, yeah, absolutely. But there are other artists who I've spoken to, like Roman Roscoe, who's another pioneer, like he's becoming interested in uh, the Roscoe Center is becoming interested in digitizing his work. So he's working with Ira Greenberg about that. And I know Ira has been on your show. And I think he's mentioned that maybe to you as well. There are certainly pioneers who are, even if they haven't released Synoptes yet, or maybe just a very few who are interested and will be releasing more in the future. Like another one is like Rebecca Allen, who is just an artist that I absolutely love. She's like a video art pioneer. She's like the first, she like basically invented and started like motion capture and like motion capture art, And like arguably in like the late seventies made like the very first like GIF that file format didn't even exist back then, but it was a short video that continuously repeats. She did some of the craft work, like some of their music videos in like the eighties. I mean, she's just like phenomenally awesome. And I love her and, and uh, she's also been like really inspirational to like contemporary artists, like operator who have like been directly impacted by her work because she does a lot of work with like the human body and, and motion and, I've also been like very fortunate to be able to talk to her, and she's also quite skeptical of NFTs, but uh, she has released one NFT, and so she's another example, like Jason Salivan of a person with this you know, decades-long celebrated career in, in museums, and who has just started releasing an NFT or NFTs, but it hasn't really been... I think given the importance that it deserves. So yeah, Rebecca Allen's work, it's definitely somebody else who, if you're looking for one of these like very celebrated mainstream artists, who's just now getting into NFTs, her and Salavan are two great examples.
0: When you're having these, you know, to the extent that you can say, and if you can't say, we can cut it out, but are you (sighs) approaching these artists kind of in your role at la random as saying like, hey, like not only do we love your work, and we revere your role in the history of this movement, but we also want to like publish you and bring you to the world. Like, is that kind of one aspect of Lorando that maybe people aren't aware of yet?
1: For sure. We are trying to encourage some of these artists to release some of their work as NFTs and and just uh, demonstrate that there are that there would be a market for it, that there there are serious collectors out there that are interested in it, that we know about their work and their history and their legacy and their impact. And yeah, without a doubt, that's something that we're trying to do. That's part of it. Another part of it is, you know, we want to talk to them. We want to hear their story. We want to, especially for me, because, you know, we'll talk about this later, but, you know, I do the kind of content there. So, you know, I want to interview them. I want to ask them questions i want to learn from them i want them to be able to tell their story i want to connect them with people who i know that they've directly impacted and and have like kind of set up like a conversation or a dialogue between contemporary artists and this pioneer who i know would have this kind of interesting conversation and and so yeah like that's part of it but there's also another part of We want to tell the story of this generative art movement, and we know that a lot of, you know, some collectors in the space, obviously not all of them, but they don't know as much about that history, and and they're really eager to learn about it, and they kind of want that context as well, and and that's a big thing that we're trying to provide.
2: Will, I know that you're trying to do that right now through reading books, like textbooks.
0: (laughs) It's a whole slog though, and I'm getting through the book very slowly. like they're very dry sometimes, or at least the one I'm reading. So if you can make that content more accessible, I think there's certainly an mm-hmm. appetite for it out there. Where's
2: the drama? Where's the uh, the social interaction, the uh, can you make it like friends? Maybe. <laughs> Is that what you're asking for? Do we need to turn this into like what's a- the
0: will they won't they of generative art? <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what book do you happen to be to be reading? When the Machine Made Art. Oh, okay. the, yeah. yeah classic, Grant right? Taylor. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's kind of like the gateway book, I think, to like really, really get into like the weeds. But yeah, it's, it's a fantastic overview, especially of that like 60s to 80s decades. Um One issue that I found like when researching the space is that a lot of these texts, they cover that same period. They cover that. 60s 70s or 60s 70s 80s period and then they kind of stop and then like that 90s to 2000s period doesn't get quite as much attention and i I mean part of that is just it's we're waiting for who is going to
2: so new too
1: right yeah exactly you're
2: right it's interesting though because that's also when computing power really had that next big leap you know people were very excited about Browsing the web, having a GUI of all things, and it is fascinating. You know, that's when you know the whole demo scene really came to fruition as well, and people doing all sorts of crazy shit with computers.
1: Yeah, definitely, like demo scene and net art, and and then design by numbers and bagel and like processing and all these things uh, kicked off. You know, not to get too far ahead, but that is the the story. That random is also. Trying to tell.
2: I think that many people who are in the space have heard of LORANDOM. Maybe there are some people who haven't, but I don't know if it's as widely known as what LORANDOM is, what it's doing. Even if 10% of the people listening are less aware, could you give an overview of what's happening with LORANDOM and what it is?
1: Yeah. So on a basic level, we're a collection. So we raise money from investors to collect and to uh, build a collection. And there's kind of two parts to the company. There's the collection part and there's the editorial part. The collection part is mostly done by the funny guys and Conrad or Nemo Cake. They will both be names very familiar to people in the space. And then the content side is more my responsibility, but uh, I help with collection and, you know, they help with content as well. So it's not that siloed, but those are the two main parts. Our mission is to show that computers extend human creativity, that they make our lives more interesting, that we want to build a collection that tells the story of generative art, that tells a story of the history of the generative art. So like our collection is different from some of the other big DAOs out there. You know, we're not only trying to get 20 of every art blocks curated release. We're looking to collect artists that came around, you know, before 2020 and and obviously some of them are on our blocks and we obviously do collect on our blocks curated and we love that platform and those artists but like that's not only what we're looking to collect whereas a lot of those bigger dows it seems like that's what's in their collection is you know punks and art blocks curated and and those artists we really want to tell the entire history of the movement starting from artists who who began the work you know starting from like a michael noel and those pioneers in the 60s and we want to include artists from every generation that we see it. So we've kind of broken down the history into three different generations. And that's like very broad. There, are, We have kind of broken it down further, but basically it's three generations. That's how we think about it. Like kind of like those pioneers from like the fifties all the way to the nineties is what we see as generation one. And then we see generation two as when processing and the internet combined to kick off the second wave that is, you know, headlined by Rees and Lieberman and like Leah. And then the third generation we see as like this on-chain generation. So, you know, we don't only want to collect from that third generation. We want our collection to tell the visual story of the movement. And on the content side, we want to actually help write that story and, and help contextualize what's happening today in relation to generative arts plays in, in history and in art history. That's kind of the long-winded basics of what we do is this collection side and, and a content side.
0: I think there's a lot to dig into there. But before we I maybe more formally quiz you on what's going on, what is the story of your involvement? Like, how did you go from writing... Tender editorials and collecting and doing some running for Right Click Save and stuff. What was it? How did you get involved?
1: So I didn't really remember this story. I had to kind of go back and like check my DMs. So it actually was Tender and that Farb Tyler editorial. It was like maybe a couple of weeks after that came out that uh, that the funny guys DM'd me. And honestly, I didn't remember why he originally DM'd me because we, you know, we've spoken a lot since then because he also DM me shortly after that about buying one of my pieces from my collection. So I was like, yeah, did he start by trying to poach this piece for me or or was it about the writing? And yeah, it was it was February of last year and it was based on that Fart Tyler article. So I hadn't written my second tender piece yet, which was about echoes by uh, Jeff I plus plus sketch. That's how we originally like got in touch. I literally think that very first day we talked, he was like, yeah, I've got this project that might be interesting for us to collaborate on. That didn't really come up again. And we just sort of started talking like almost every day about, it was just all about art and all about the art that we like and kind of collecting and, you know, what we were interested in. And then I think it was around April, we actually had like a phone conversation. He kind of told me more about his idea and like his vision for the random that kind of snowballed and it kind of worked up timing wise because my job in Hong Kong was ending in in August. And so it's like, yeah, like I didn't want to like continue with that. That was right around the time when I would be potentially starting for a as well. So that's kind of how it got started. It's just like a Twitter DM. So like keep your DMs open out there
0: ours are definitely open for anyone who wants to talk not about starting a fund but just to chat you know we're well, all... also
2: if you want to start a fund we're down to talk
0: yeah we're down to talk we don't <laughs> have much to contribute yeah trendy where do you want to go from here you want to dig into the content side or should we talk more about the collection side
2: i did have one follow up question on the collection because obviously this third generation that you know you're documenting mm. now and that we're learning about right now collecting is easy it's straightforward it's on the blockchain everybody knows where it is it's frictionless marketplace for some of the more historical works, obviously it's something that may have been printed out on paper forty years ago. It might be something that is only stored on a VHS tape, whatever. Is Laurendum also collecting more of the historic works as a part of the overall generative art scene, or is it primarily focusing on works that are on the blockchain?
1: That's a great question because that's something that we talk about a lot. Those like physical pieces from especially first generation artists, we aren't collecting them dot 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 yet. But a lot of that is because of, you know, the traditional challenges of collecting that kind of work, which is how do you store it, where do you store it, you know, like the outdated technology and that kind of thing. Obviously like the Spalters, you know, Michael and Anne. So Anne is one of Lorandum's advisors. So they're the gods in, in that corner of the market. And one of the reasons why we're trying to encourage these pioneers to digitize their work and release it as NFTs, so it's it's definitely not because we're so like, you know, we're pretty agnostic about work that's an NFT or work that isn't. We see art as art, but NFT does kind of enable this sort of these frictionless transactions. And so one of the things that we're doing is trying to encourage, you know, their and Michael Knowles and Rebecca Allen's to release their work as nfts so that um, just so that we're actually able to collect it because we want to collect their work and for us at this time it's it's mostly only possible if it's uh, through an nft
0: continuing on the collection side because it's so fascinating I think always talk to even though I know it's maybe not your primary role you can certainly speak to it a bit so you guys took on funding in part I guess to build the platform but also to I'd imagine primarily build the collection. What does that look like as an organization that has outside investment like that tasked with building a collection? What's the time frame on this stuff? Is it is it like a 10-year horizon, a 20-year horizon? Like, are people putting in that money knowing that it could all go to zero? I mean, obviously anything can go to zero, but like, what what's the expectation managing a fund of this size? Because you've done some also very particular collecting. Like you said, it's not just buying 20 of each of the art block security pieces. It's like, buying RGB number one, setting the record on the pink Zancan garden monoliths. So what does it look like? Like what's the strategy and what, where do, you know, I hate to say it, but like, where do the returns come in, right? When you take in an investment, there's gotta be some expectation eventually, right?
2: And just to pile onto that, but even just like looking at the way the random positions itself on the internet, is it even a fund?
0: Yeah,
1: no, we're, we're not a fund. And we, we try to make that clear to artists that we're not a fund. We're not a fund in the sense that we can never be liquidated and like for sellers like so we want to make it very clear especially to like the artists that we collect that we are collecting their work like think of it as like a essentially a permanent home our time frame is very long term any kind of exit strategy is something that is like very far down the line we believe in like the importance of this movement long term you know we think that this is something that. Is just beginning, and that while you know there's going to be short-term market fluctuations and like quote-unquote bear markets, you know that are cyclical and short-term. That we definitely think the long-term directionality is, is something that uh, we have very like strong belief in, and so yeah, like we don't have a directive to sell. Like we we do have targets that we're trying to demonstrate that we are responsible custodians of the funds that we've so far gathered but we don't have any directive to sell or to like make a profit or anything like that we're buying like helena sarin's first ever nft you know rgb1 like you mentioned and you know we're buying historically significant Pieces that we think are going to withstand the test of time.
0: So, like, Metaversal was a kind of a founding partner, right? It, or has put money in. So, when an organization like that, or even private individuals who might have given money, like, is it considered a donation? Like, it, I mean, I, I guess I'm just trying to like wrap my head around like, no, there's no horizon. We're building a collection. Like, we're, but we also, people gave us money to do this. It's not a nonprofit thing. Like, it's not a donation, right? So, they, They're giving money and there's got to be something written. I mean, if you can't speak about it, you can't speak about it. It's okay. And we can move on from this. I'm just just always curious when people are like playing with serious money in this space and like making big moves. What is it? Is it like we're going to sell this to a museum in 20 years and like, but until then, we're just going to be good stewards in the space and try to build the community and build knowledge. Like if it's a difficult question, we can move on. But it just, it just feels like it's not a donation, right? It's like people who are investing. So there has to be some expectation of a return at some point,
1: right? The funds and the institutions that we raised from, we were very transparent with them that this was going to be long-term. So they knew that going in and and they willingly invested at that time, knowing that it is a company, but it's a company that is in it for the long-term. And that if there is an exit strategy or any kind of like expected return, it's not something that we are worrying about in the short term, and you know, in the short term, our goals are to build this historically significant collection, and also just in general elevate the space, and in a way decouple it from NFTs, and show that the space is just a part of the mainstream art world. It's not separate from it. It's something that is part of art history, and we're trying to write that history through our collection and and through our
0: editorial branch as well maybe we should transition to the editorial side then what you're doing directly right and bringing that education piece what is like the plan for the first year or so because right now the site is still under construction more or less right there's not any been major content updates so what's kind of your vision for the first few years of the site well actually when this comes out it will be our our full
1: page so but as of the recording and, and what it's been from march 2023 to may has been like a landing page where we're trying to see who's interested and and collect you know names for like newsletter and just get our name out there but by the time this episode airs our full site will be up we're really excited to be launching that that's been obviously what we've been working on since day one when i started back in november you'll be able to see our entire collection It's not just like a link to a DECA gallery. Like it's something that we've custom built. We're going to have our content that is going to be released. So like by the time this comes out, we'll have, we should have four pieces out. The funny guys wrote a piece about, you know, kind of his motivations for starting L'Orandom. One of the other first pieces is going to be a interview with Casey Rees, where we talk about the history of generative art and a few other things and kind of what he thinks are some of the kind of lesser known parts of that history. Uh, we've got an interview coming up with Operator, which is, again, history focused. So I spoke to them, you know, over the course of like more than two hours about deep into the weeds of like the historical roots of human unreadable and I've given like a sneak peek of that on Twitter if you've seen those random threads about uh, human unreadable and about some of the uh, all of the the history in those pieces. And then I'm curating the FX exhibition for NFC Lisbon. so like I wrote like a curatorial statement about that gallery. We'll be putting that up on La too. Another big thing that we have is this huge project that I'm that I've been working on. this generative art timeline which is basically like a book length like it'll be about a hundred thousand words which if you translate that to a book that's like 400 pages just of text it's a basically book that's a timeline of generative art history that goes back to seventy thousand years ago to like some of the first art ever made we've consulted with like so For example, Phil Gallanter is the one who has written about those uh, Blombos Caves paintings that are where we begin the timeline. But, you know, we've consulted with Zach Lieberman and Casey Rees and Anne Spalter and Jason Bailey and and Georg Bach and, and, you know, just a lot of people about this timeline. And and I've been writing it for months and months and months. I mean, it's literally like writing a book, but it'll all be on Lorendam's website. There's going to be about 800 or so, like, moments in the timeline we've divided it into like 10 chapters and we're going to be releasing it chapter by chapter so it would be kind of crazy to release it all at once So it would just be too much information so we've divided it into 10 and we're going to be releasing it in chronological order kind of starting with the release of our full site which will be up any day now and definitely by the time that this airs and then like where we're we going in the next year if you can tell i mean obviously like a, a thread throughout my description of lorandum has been about history so we obviously want to provide a space where the community can better understand its past but we're not only talking about history you know we also want to help curate the present and curate what some of the you know amazing artists today are doing and then also celebrate its future too so like that's kind of in my head like that's what I want the editorial side to do is like help the community understand its past, curate its present, celebrate its future, producing content that contextualizes where the space is and where it's going. We really want to support the artists in the space, but also the kind of uninitiated with this kind of like informative content to uh, demonstrate that this is an art movement that we think is going to be written about in art history textbooks and you know it's not something that began with nfts but in a way like nfts is more like the end of a very long thousand year story as opposed to any kind of like beginning to the story
2: we're also not at the end of the story yet (laughs) we're still very much in progress
1: absolutely yeah i mean it's uh even prominent people in the space do kind of consider nfts this kind of beginning in a way but uh yeah we want to show that there's even lots of preconditions for NFTs, which Casey Rees has talked a lot about, even through things like smartphones, but, you know, mass media art. And we really want to demonstrate that with our collection and with the editorial. I mean,
0: that all sounds amazing, first of all. And I feel like the 10 chapters thing would make for a great reading series on our show, Trinity. Like, I don't know how frequently you're going to publish them, like once a week or once a month when they come out, but that would be pretty great for us to talk about those as they air. But is all of that going to be like free? Like, is or is there a... A part of the site where some of this content is going to be monetized or or gated like what's the vision for that
1: yeah everything will be free like there's not going to be like we're not running like ads on our site there's no like paid subscription the timeline will be completely available and for free the goal for the timeline is to get it on a digital form first it's So big and detailed, Uh, but like having said that too, uh, there's no question that we're gonna get comments that are pointing out that we miss something, that I miss something, and we very much welcome that. Like this is not like, this is the definitive every moment that's important to the history of generative art. And it's not only gonna cover art history, it's gonna also cover some of the history of mathematics and some of the history of technology, but obviously how they relate to digital generative art. The eventual plan is we want to make it also into a, a physical book. And so that physical book, of course, you know, we're not going to be giving that away for free. The goal for that book is not to necessarily at all like make a profit. Like we would just w- would like to cover our costs maybe in getting it printed. But we want to make like a really nice, like high quality book inspired by like, you know, Matt Delorier's Meridian's book, if you've seen those. Those books are works of art. In themselves. So, we also want to make a book like that for the timeline, but we would probably have to cut down the timeline because, like I said, like the digital version is going to be already probably about what a 400 page book would be. That is with no images in it. So, we, we would probably need to uh, cut down the content for a physical book, but the digital book will always be on the Lorandom website and. It's also not going to like stop. Like it doesn't stop at the year 2018 or even 2023. We're going to have a 2023. Next year, we're going to have a 2024, and we're going to have those moments that continue to impact the story of the movement.
2: Listening to you talk about this, it's honestly quite amazing. And this book, even if it's in the 400 page no picture edition, it's something that should and could sit on the bookshelves of research institutions across the world, you know, libraries and universities all across the world. How do you feel knowing that the content that you're producing now is really telling the future of humanity what generative art is and how we should be looking at it? From a historical context, like I have like tomes of art history books that were published in the 1940s and 1950s, 400 plus pages, no pictures, of course, (laughs) but really serve as the encyclopedia and the de facto source of truth, blockchain or no, as to what these art movements are all about.
1: I think that I haven't wrapped my head around it yet because it's been such a monumental task, just the amount of research that's gone into it. It's not finished, by the way. Also, <laughs> like, I have like a Google document that's like just that is 150 pages. That is only listing the moments. <laughs> so like the actual like writing about each of those, there around a thousand of those moments. That's still an ongoing process. So as of like literally today, I I've finished writing up until the 60s, which the end of the 60s, which will be the biggest decade the biggest single chapter and so to me i haven't really wrapped my head around what its impact or like legacy is going to be because i'm still in like the middle of the hurricane and and i haven't uh, i'm i'm really just trying to do my best to like actually write it like i've a lot of important milestones have been done like the core research has been done although it's really difficult to stop researching about it because you always read something else you always want to add it and it could almost be you know maybe twice the size as it is now but uh i was talking to somebody yesterday about it gordon berger who's like one of the early early people who got that art could be connected to the blockchain like i think he was like the first person to give like a ted talk about like art on a blockchain he said we should call it the nft or the generative art bible which uh it's a little too flashy i think for our (laughs) for our style i think we're gonna probably stick with something like the generative art timeline but if you have if you have a catchier title then uh please let us know
2: we'll workshop it
0: yeah thumbs down to bible though for sure yeah yeah
2: (laughs) yeah Yeah,
1: there are some interesting connotations there but we're excited about what it'll bring to the space And, and like at bright moments tokyo the funny guys and i with seth goldstein who's like the founder of bright moments we were on a panel and we talked about the history of generative art and i wrote this poster where i just took like 10 moments from the timeline and 10 moments from like kind of the world and then 10 moments about Japan art generative art and we talked at bright moments about that poster even that like generated like so much interest and like so much just curiosity about the history and it was just surprising because that was like nothing <laughs> like that was 10 moments out of what is going to be around a thousand. So it's about one percent of like what we were doing and was in like far less detail. And like Sotheby's has asked us to use those ten moments for something that they're working on. So like those are gonna be like on their site. We haven't really talked that much about the timeline or promoted it at all. What has gone public, like the 10 moments at Brett Moments and that poster has been really encouraging so far. We've hit on something that people are really interested in and curious about. And it's cool to be part of telling that story. It it is something that I take seriously and that I've spent an enormous amount of time on. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited about
0: too. It's very exciting. I'm really, truly excited to start reading this when you put it out. It sounds like it's going to be incredible. And I need to go find that Bright Moments panel. I'm sure it's live somewhere for view you know as we move towards wrapping the episode we should do some rapid fire questions we like to end with those mm-hmm. and here so here's one though that is not one of a typical ones but i wanted to continue on what you were saying about moments and eras you know we're halfway through 2023 you're chronicling the present as well as part of this right what is like the defining moment so far in 2023 or what do you kind of feel as the vibe of 2023 right now like what's exciting about this year in generative art
1: in terms of like what we already have on the timeline for this year, we're starting to see a lot of a lot more institutional interest in generative art. One thing is the coded exhibition at LACMA. That started back in February. So that coded art enters the computer age. You know, I have the this this is another kind of like inspiration for the timeline, this printed physical version of the exhibition. I think that's a really key moment for this year and, and for generative art history, despite the fact that it hasn't always received like great critical reviews, like the New York Times has kind of panned it a little bit and some other institutions or some other uh, publications have not always been positive about it. But that's also nothing new in art history is critical panning, especially in this space that's been going on for decades. So that is big some of these institutions like pompidou and buffalo akg and then also lacma their acquisition of nfts for the first time that's been really important as well we kind of see this year as the year that major institutions like lacma the year that they start taking the space more seriously because the you know the auction houses started it you know christies and sotheby's and Phillips, those major art institutions were the first makes sense logically that the business side was going to be attracted by the extra capital that they could maybe realize from the space. So that was probably always going to happen. And that was a natural fit. But now to see these major institutions get involved, that's kind of like
0: a huge and important step. I just got back from LACMA. So (laughs) I just went to see the exhibit over the weekend, which is great. Yeah.
1: What do you think about it?
0: Uh, It was really cool, but I was with a baby. So I didn't get to really like digest it for nearly as long as I would have liked because she squirms. <laughs> but at least I got to go. But I should definitely pick up that book. Do you want to continue with the rapid fire trinity?
2: Let's talk about Monk Anthony. Where did that where did the name come from?
0: That was something that's kind of like an nod to my
1: love of history. So I like really love history. So not just art history, every kind of history. I watch, read books about it, watch documentaries about it, listen to podcasts about it. It's just something that I've always been interested in. I've always really loved Roman history. And so Monk Antony is kind of a play on Mark Antony, which is maybe not always obvious because a lot of people call me like Monk Anthony uh, with th. i T-H. I've always kind of like monkeys, like they've been my favorite animal. And then this kind of nod to Roman history. So
0: that's where that came from. But is that like an old AOL username or something, or is it something that you invented for Web3?
1: Wasn't an old AOL username. That was, you know, like probably something like Weezer related back in the like early, like late 90s or whatever. Uh, (laughs) uh, But that is more recent in the past like few
0: years. Here's another rapid fire then. You know, you've been a great guest and we always like to ask our guests, who would they like to hear us interview? So any recommendations, any ideas, you know, you've thrown out a lot of names in this podcast already of figures from the past, but yeah, past or present, anyone who's still living, obviously, like who would you like to hear us interview?
1: Some of those pioneers, like especially those generation two and uh, generation one pioneers, I, I think would be great to have on to tell their story like firsthand. They also can be skeptical of NFTs. So, you know, you two are, I think, some of the best like advocates in this space so you know if they get a chance to talk to you personally i think that that could be uh, you know really positive it'd be awesome to hear like from some of these pioneers like firsthand so that could be somebody like roman roscoe somebody like lillian schwartz i mean some of these artists are are getting up there so i mean i hope that they would be even able to do that but uh, yeah like lillian schwartz somebody like rebecca allen Lynn Hirschman Leeson would be like a really awesome person to speak to. And then from generation two, like more about like the net art and like computer generation, like somebody from like Joan Heemskirk, from Jody, Leah, Golan Levin, Cornelius Solfrank, and then, you know, some of those like big, big names that we all know and love, like Casey Reese and Zach Lieberman. I think, you know, that would be, you know, Ben Fry too, like he kind of gets forgotten because. He's not hugely active in the NFT space, but, you know, he uh, would be an awesome person to hear his side of the story from. Amazing. Yeah, great names.
2: Next rapid fire question. If you were stuck on a desert island for the rest of your life with one piece from your collection, what would it be?
0: Or if you could steal one from Lorandom's collection. (laughs) We'll start with your collection (laughs) first. Yeah.
2: And then you could say Lorandom, yeah.
1: I'd probably, that's... Interesting question. I yeah, I probably choose one of those infinitely animating pieces, which I'm kind of naturally drawn towards, anyways. Like just because on a desert island, you know, I wouldn't want to get bored. Not that I would necessarily get bored by looking at a the same static image, but I think it would be really cool to have one of those like infinitely animating pieces. So maybe something like Toxie Defrag. One of those ones that I have in my collection. I really like the painterly ones, like the version threes. So I'd say, yeah, maybe a Toxy version three, a Defrag version three, or pound for pound, my favorite collection on FX Hash is Robert Hodgen's uh, Growth version two. So probably one of those. So we'll
2: give you that and an infinitely powered digital display.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would need no one of those. As okay, well. that's but- just.
2: Built in. Okay,
1: cool. I mean, you two know FX better than I do. What would you choose? I'd be curious to know.
2: I hadn't thought about the infinitely animated piece, but probably from my collection, Ethereal Microcosm, mm-hmm. and really just forming bonds with the different types and different colors of particles and just, you know, being able to put in a lot of personification in them and their activity. And we'll see who wins out over the course of 10 or 20 years.
1: And every day you woke up, it would look different and it would have morphed and evolved into something new and interesting yeah that's a really good
0: choice as well how about you will what would you choose i'm trying to think real quick now i wasn't prepared to answer this one myself turning the tables here love it yeah infinitely animating is is cool i mean i'm tempted to say something like very large array because then at least you get some audio Mm. too but that Mm. might you would would need to be able to turn it off and on you know sometimes you want to hear the audio sometimes you won't Having a piece though that's similar to that, I'm trying to think of like what I have that has some more pleasing audio components to it.
2: There's Ticata.
0: Yeah, Takada could be a really nice one. Takada is probably the right answer mm. <laughs> there. I... Yeah, uh, the one that I personally own is not my favorite of the musical variations there, but one that is like right in that pocket because it degrades, and you probably want one that's like on like the weeks long degrading process, so you have this like nice. A way to keep track of time, right? You need to know. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a yeah, I think I'll I'll take Takata. That would be great. You'd get speakers too if Yeah. If right. you're, it's a very nice desert a island. Display. Yeah. yeah.
2: It doesn't need to be like a castaway style desert island. It can be one that has amenities, I suppose. Yeah, also technically infinitely animating would be hollow. Just to throw that out so you could see who's visiting the museum today. Hmm. It was definitely calmer. Oh, or the Ismahilio drop. You can see how your grasses grow.
0: Oh, oh yeah. yeah, that'd be a fun one.
2: I forget what it's called right now. Proxima, is it?
0: The one before that. Oh, okay, I know what you mean. We're like, every day it- The grasses yeah.
2: grow, the trees yeah. grow. Yeah,
0: I haven't checked in on that in a while, actually. Anything else that you want to ask? Because that's always our last rapid fire. Is like, do you want to ask us any questions before we go?
1: Yeah, I think we, like, content creators need to, like, stick together. Like, I'd, I'd love to <laughs> talk to you sometime- in my capacity at the random and like interview you two. I mean, learn more about you. And uh, I mean, I know you've been on other podcasts recently as well, but uh, something written or like just talking about you in that space, I think would be really, really cool. And like I said, I don't think probably anybody knows more about this FX hash community better than you two. And and, uh, I think that would be great to have you on
0: or like speak to you and publish it in some capacity. Are we going to make the 2022 timeline is the question. Is there going to be the first episode of waiting to be signed? Is it going to make, oh, the, yeah. make the list? Uh-oh. <laughs> you're, you're like, That's oh, I didn't put question. it on there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that would be cool. I'm down for that. What about you, Trinity?
2: I'm down for that. You know, I think it's all about creating that history. We're creating that history kind of unknowingly right now. Well, semi-knowingly. Well, it's knowing just as you are. And we're all part of history as it's being lived right now. And I think that's very palpable within the space.
0: We're conscious of it. I mean, we talk about it every now and then on the show that like we view this as kind of like a way to capture this entire moment. One of the greater, I guess, purposes of the of the show, right, is it's not just like getting out alpha and like talking about markets. That's a part of it. But that's also just because we're doing NFTs, right? Mm-hmm. But, but we've had amazing guests and it's awesome. We're proud of it for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, you should be. I, and I think even what you've done with FX Techs, like really with those weekly texts kind of going over like the drops i mean it's that in itself you could make into a book at some point because it really does document like week by week what's been happening on the site and and i think that's uh important and man i'm i'm excited to finally meet some of the fx
0: ash team in lisbon for nfc yeah sadly we're not going to be going to that one but spoiler
2: alert ozzy's not a cat
0: yeah (laughs) i'm sorry sorry yeah We've had, like,
1: opportunities in the past to, like, meet in real life. Like, it was so annoying. Like, I had literally bought a ticket to go to New York in, what was that, like, in November? Yeah, it was originally going to be, like, December. But then I bought a ticket for January to go to New York. And, like, my the mm. Portuguese visa, like, ended up being a month early. And so, like, I had to get here, like, within a certain amount of time. So I had to cancel that trip, which really sucked because I was very much looking forward to... Uh, Seeing it, like there's so many people in the space in New York and, and meeting you two, especially. So it would be very cool to meet up at some point. Definitely. We'll get We're it done. Here for it. Yeah. yeah. It'll happen for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, anything else? Is there anything that we miss or should we wrap it up? Is there anything else you want to plug like that we should be looking forward to?
1: By the time this airs, like, the random.art will be up. The first chapter of the timeline will be up. The first four editorials a bunch of artist profiles that we rewrote we ourselves. Like you can see our entire collection. I know the the funny guys will be at NFT Day Zurich. He's going to be talking on a panel there at NFC Lisbon doing the FX hash curation. So looking forward to that, that tiny, tiny bit of our timeline. Sotheby's is going to be, they're going to be putting that up on their website. And then, yeah, we've got a bunch happening Like collapse in the future, like with bright moments, and like the next city that they're going to be doing, which is like Buenos Aires. We've got some exciting stuff
0: planned for for that, so stay tuned. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Monk Anthony. It was great to have you on the show. (laughs) Good to get the word out about everything you're doing. Learn about you as a collector, your history. So obviously, you're like an original. FX hash collector. Even though you missed the first week, it's okay. But we all we so all missed that first week. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Like honestly, I'm such a huge
1: fan of the two of you, and you know we've been online friends for a while, but uh, it's been great to like talk more. And I guess we've talked in like you know different calls over the yeah. the last few months. But yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Like you invited me on and uh being on. So thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. Thank you. That's the interview. That was Monk Anthony. Thank you for joining. Hope you all enjoyed. And uh, we'll be back again soon with another episode. Later.